Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here today. A little bit of an unusual day today with the technological failure. It's just a reminder to all of us that everything in life does fail us, but that God never will, and that he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is a great comfort to all of God's people, that he is faithful in an unfailing and unchanging way. We talk a lot here about not over-reading God's providence, like trying to read the tea leaves and read between the lines of every little thing that's happening in your life. But one thing might be clear for everybody in the room this morning. If you don't have a Bible app on your phone, you might want to download one. Because we do not have the screen working today to put the verses up. Many will have brought Bibles with you, and that's great. But if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, now you could download the ESV Bible app. There's a shameless plug from me. You can have your Bible with you on your phone wherever you go. It might serve you well even this morning. Before we look to God's word, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help, ask him to overcome any distractions, any burdens, and overcome our sin that we have brought with us here today. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you this morning not as people who are strong, but as those who are weak, not as those who are sufficient, but as those who are desperate. Father, we come needing you to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray that we would feel, above all things, our need of Christ today. We pray that you would meet with us now by your Spirit as we look to your Word. Give us eyes to see what's in your Word. Give us ears to hear the truth of it. And more than anything, we pray that we would behold our Savior, Jesus Christ, from Scripture today. And that as we do that, that our faith would be sustained, our faith would even be strengthened, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold our Savior, and our Redeemer. Do that for us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We talk often here as well, on a more serious note, about the main point of Scripture, the main story of the Bible, being God's eternal plan of redemption that he accomplished through Jesus. So if you're newer with us here this morning, if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here today. It's good that we would think this way together. This book has a very cohesive story to it. It was written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and its cohesiveness and the way it hangs together is astonishing. There is one big story that God is telling throughout, and it is the story of our failure, our weakness, and our sin against the backdrop of his utter faithfulness and grace and mercy and plan to save his people. This book is ultimately about that eternal plan of redemption that was formed before the world began, accomplished by Jesus Christ in time and space, so that all of God's people might be brought to glory, might be forgiven of sin, might be counted righteous, not on the basis of their own works or their own deeds or their own faithfulness, but on the basis of Christ's works and his faithfulness and his goodness, and his perfect obedience to God's law. That's the thrust of Scripture. So we look at every single passage of the Bible with that main story in view. Why wouldn't we do that, right? If you were reading a book about World War II, and it had some small anecdote in it that was interesting, you would still read that anecdote in light of the larger context of World War II. It's the same thing with Scripture. Every passage we read in light of that main story. In our text today, we're going to be going back to Mark's gospel. We're going to be looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking most pointedly at the final hours of his life 
as he is handed over. He is delivered over by the Jewish leaders to the Roman authorities to be executed. We'll consider the crucifixion itself next week, but today we're going to be thinking about how Christ was delivered over on our behalf. And we will see many things come together. We'll see hatred and corruption, mob rule, empires, politics, all of those real, earthly, flesh and blood things come together to result in the only righteous man in the history of the world being put to death. And in so doing, God's plan of redemption would be accomplished. If you have your Bibles with you or if you've downloaded that app, open them up, turn them on to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 14, verse 53 through Mark 15 and verse 15. Again, that's Mark 14, 53 and following. The sermon text is printed for you in your bulletins. Before we go any further, it will serve us well if I read God's word for us. So follow along and listen as I read the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have a a plan for us today. Uh, Three points, pretty simple in that respect. There's a couple of reflections mixed in, point one and two. And then there are two closing reflections after point three. And you're probably thinking, brother, that sounds more like an algebraic equation than a sermon outline. But I promise you will serve us well. I hope that's clear enough to you. Three points is the main thing you need to consider. I will try to be clear about where we are. Point number one, I've entitled fake trial and false witness. Point number one, fake trial and false witness. We're going to be looking at chapter 14, verses 53 through 65 together for a moment. Before we put our eyes there, just a brief reminder of the context. Jesus, last week when we looked in Mark's gospel, was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested by a mob, and he was now brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious leaders of the Jewish people. That's what's happened. Also important for our text today is the fact that Jesus predicted that all of his disciples would scatter when he was arrested. Peter, of course, spoke up, we remember, and said, even if everybody else denies you, I will not do that. And Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me three times tonight, in fact. So keep all of those things in mind. Jesus has been handed over, and he is now before the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. In verses 53 and following, we see this, what I'm calling a fake trial, unfold. The whole thing is irregular in how it goes down. Trials before the council, before the Sanhedrin, would have typically taken place in a public place near the temple during the day. And none of that is true here. We have this happening under the cover of darkness in the courtyard of the high priest's home. The whole thing is highly irregular. It's shady, to say the least. The Jewish leaders we see in verses 53 and following are scrambling to find false witnesses who will bear testimony against Christ? Can we just drum up something that will hold water so that we can convict this man? We can find him guilty of even a religious crime in their context. Can anybody corroborate a testimony against Jesus that would be worthy of handing him over to the Romans for execution? Can that happen? That's their goal. It's quite clear. You can see even in verse 55 quite plainly that that was their aim. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. But they persist. Even though they couldn't find any testimonies that would agree. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. Then in verses 57 through 59, there's a particular false testimony about what Jesus had said. He had said that if you tear down this temple, meaning his body, I'll rebuild it in three days, meaning I will rise from the dead. 
they're twisting what Jesus had actually said in these verses. But then Mark tells us in verse 59, but even about this, their testimonies didn't agree. Shows how desperate the Jewish leaders were to rid themselves of Jesus. Fabrications, false witness, whatever we got to do. Just a brief word here. This is a kind of a reflection, but more just some comments from me on false witness itself. It's a big deal in the Bible. If you read Genesis through Revelation, you understand that God takes bearing false testimony, bearing false witness about another person to be a very big deal. It is the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments given. In Exodus 20, verse 16, God tells us, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, most pointedly, if you wanted to jot those down and look at them later, the Lord is quite clear through Moses that two or three witnesses are required in order for someone to be found guilty of an offense or a crime. One witness will not do it. One person could say whatever he or she wants to say. There needs to be a corroboration of testimony of two or three witnesses for somebody to be found guilty. The Lord tells us in Deuteronomy 19 in those same verses that the truthfulness of a witness is to be judged. And if the witness is found to be malicious, if the witness is found to be false, then the scripture prescribes in the covenant community of the Old Testament, right, that that false witness is to receive the punishment of the offense that he or she levied against the accused. Meaning, let me say it more simply, if you made up a fabricated story and accused somebody of murder and it wasn't legit, the false witness who had falsely accused another human being of killing someone would then be guilty for the sentence of murder, right? So you lied and said that person killed someone. That is a capital offense. That means that the false witness would then be killed instead, executed instead. This was God's law that he gave to Israel. This is how he told them that they were to operate as a society under this law. False witness is a very big deal in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord in those verses of Deuteronomy 19 calls false witness evil and says to have no pity on false malicious witnesses so that the people will hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil. Those are serious words. And then even over in the New Testament, we have the writings of Paul. He writes to the church in 1 Timothy 5 verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So even there, the testimony of multiple people against the leader of the church is required if, if that particular individual is going to be found guilty. False witness is a particularly sinister and destructive use of our tongues. It's very interesting how we will read certain passages of the Bible about not using unwholesome speech or about you know, taming the tongue in James, and we immediately start to think about four-letter words. That's how we've been, many of us, raised to think. that Well, clearly what's in view is foul language. Okay, well, that's part of what's in view. But the most sinister stuff that we can do with our tongues, clearly, is to say false things about God, but then also to bear false witness and destroy other people. Paul exhorts us to use our tongues for what? The building up of others. James the same. Use it for love and edification, the building up of the body. False witness is a particular kind of evil, and it is incredibly destructive. Lives can be ruined. Churches even can be torn apart. 
just a few thoughts for you on something that's a very big deal in the Bible. Back to our text now. We see that false witness ultimately resulted in Jesus Christ being put to death. Verse 60, we see the high priest stood up in the midst of all of these proceedings. They're trying to find false testimony that would hold water. They can't. He stands up and says to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Aren't you going to answer all of these accusations that are being hurled at you, Jesus? And of course, the whole thing is absurd. The whole thing is whack. There is not a substantiated accusation to even answer. Rather than defend himself, though, in verse 61, we, receive, we see that Jesus remained silent and made no answer. He remained silent in the face of his accusers. This is no small thing either because the suffering servant of the Lord was written about in the Old Testament, most notably in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah says in chapter 53 and verse 7 of the suffering servant of God, the Savior, the Redeemer who would come. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Peter, who's in our passage today, when he would later become a pillar in the church and would write letters that were canonized in scripture to the church, he reflected back on this and said, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The high priest's question in verse 61 is a big one. He gets right to the heart of the matter. The second half of the verse, you can put your eyes there. He asks him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed, the son of God? And Christ responds in verse 62 very directly and says, I am. Throughout much of Mark's gospel, Jesus had kept his identity hidden. We had talked about the reasons for that. It was because there was a plan that needed to be accomplished, a mission to be finished. And Jesus would not jeopardize that mission, that plan, by revealing his identity too soon, resulting in unnecessary fanfare. Anything that would get in the way of him going to the cross to die for God's people was not all right. But now the end is here. Are you the Christ? I am. I am. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's his favorite title to use about himself. It's a reference to the divine Son of Man figure in Daniel chapter 7. This language of the Son of Man coming in the clouds and seated in power is not only the language of Daniel 7, it's the same language Jesus had used in Mark chapter 13 that we thought about just a couple of weeks ago. If you put your eyes now on verse 63, we see that the high priest responds to Christ's direct answer. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. The high priest tears his robes, which is a sign of great emotion, angst, agony, right? This is blasphemy. How could he say this, that I am the Messiah? He asks, what further witnesses do we need? His, his day has been made, as far as his perspective is concerned. We were trying to get testimony against Jesus. We don't need anything else now. He's claimed to be the Messiah. It's over. Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. 
Right? Blasphemy is to insult the honor of God. You have heard this man blaspheme and claim to be the son of God. What else do we need to hear? What is your decision, he asks. And we see that they all determined that he was guilty. They condemned him as deserving death. Now, it's important to note that in Jesus' day, Judea, in which Jerusalem is situated, was under the reign and rule and control of the Roman Empire. And so only the Roman governor had the authority to prescribe and execute capital punishment. So we're going to see that unfold soon in the coming verses. They can't execute him in their own power in this situation. They determine that he deserves death, but there's going to have to be more engineering, more manipulation that will be required in order to actually see this through. In verse 65, we see that some of them gathered. Again, this is the council of the religious leaders of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin as it was known. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. They're mocking him. They cover his face so he can't see, and they hit him. Who hit you? Prophesy if you're the Christ. This is like absolutely undiluted hatred toward Christ. Isaiah 50 and verse 6 that we heard read even in our midst this morning of the servant of God who would come, the Redeemer. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So it would be. Jesus would be beaten and have his beard pulled out by the Romans. That's given to us in the gospel accounts. And here, members of the Sanhedrin mock him and disgrace him and spit on him. The Lord's servant would go as it was written of him. And as you hear all of these things that Jesus endured, even as a human being, right? The greatest suffering like we thought about last week was the fact that he knew that he was about to enter our God-forsaken state so that he might bring us and reconcile us to God. That's the biggest deal. He's going to bear the wrath of God against all the sin of God's people of all time. That's the biggest deal. But what he went through at a human level and the suffering that he experienced is no small matter. And as you hear about it, and as you think about the horror of it, don't just stop there. Remember, in a very personal sense, that he did that for you. He did it for you and me. What a Savior we have. Point number two, keep this in view. Point number two, I've given the heading of denial. Very short, denial. We're going to look at verses 66 through 72 of chapter 14. We're going to think about Peter and his denial of Christ. If you look back at verse 54 for one second, just notice these words. Jesus is led to the high priest in verse 53, and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes come together. And then in verse 54, this. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Even here, so I said this last week. I think this is true to say, fair to say again this week. We're often pretty hard on Peter because he makes the bold claim, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. You know, he often speaks up and says what we would be thinking anyway. But even here, in verse 54, in this whole thing of Peter following Christ at a distance and being there in the courtyard of the high priest's house, we see something of Peter's love for Jesus. 
He was afraid, but he loved Jesus too much to desert him altogether. So he followed at a distance. But even that was a risk, right? And it's worth noting that he's the only one of the disciples that took that risk. All the other ones are gone. I mean, they're nowhere to be found. So before we lambast Peter, we should think in those terms, like his love for Christ and his devotion to Christ is still showing up in the fact that he's on the scene at all. We should have compassion for Peter. I'll say this very personally. I see myself in Peter. I don't know about you. There's enough love, enough bravery to not desert Jesus altogether. But there's enough fear to keep him at a distance, right? And we know that Peter would ultimately fail on this night, that he would deny Christ. Put your eyes on verse 66. We'll see how this goes down. In verses 66 through the beginning of verse 70, just describe the scene here. There's a servant girl in the high priest's house who sees Peter two different times. How she recognized him, we don't know. We're not told. But she did. She points him out as being one of those who was with Jesus. Peter denies it both times. The servant girl persists in saying, you're a follower. She stirs up the bystanders even, right to where they begin in verse 70, to say to Peter, certainly you're one of them. Certainly you are. You're a Galilean. Apparently Peter had said enough that his accent had maybe betrayed him. We don't know. So Peter had denied Jesus the first two times when the servant girl had said something to him. We saw that the rooster had already crowed once in verse 68. Mark gives us that detail. And then now in verse 70, when the whole group is accusing him, in verse 71, Peter says, he invokes a curse on himself, and he swears, like he's using the strongest language possible. You know, like we'll say in our context, like I swear on whatever, you know, my mother's life or something. Like it's very serious. I promise you, like you got to believe me, that I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, verse 72, the rooster crowed a second time, And we're told that Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And it hits him. Right at the end of verse 72, he's he's finally broken. He breaks down and he's weeping. So let's reflect together for just a moment on Peter's weakness that is also our weakness. Peter's weakness and our weakness. We are all weak to the point that in the right situation, it does not take much pressure from temptation to break us down. Real talk. We are all weak to the point that in the right situation, it does not take much pressure from temptation to break us down. We don't like to think of it that way. We probably wouldn't want to admit that that's true, but it's true. As a friend said recently, our virtue is often just an absence of temptation. Jesus had told Peter that he would fail. We considered that together last week. Peter, you will deny me. But Peter wouldn't hear it. And then all it took were the questions of a servant girl to show Peter the weakness and the sinfulness of his own heart. Jesus had tried to Break Peter down. Now, Peter, I'm telling you, if you only knew, you're going to deny me three times tonight. But again, Peter would not listen. 
to Christ. But on this night, Peter would be broken. He would weep on this night. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us that when the rooster crowed that second time, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. It's a detail that Mark doesn't give us, but Luke does. It's fair to say that it was that look along with remembering, as Mark says, what Jesus had told him that finally did Peter in. It finally broke him. And he wept bitterly. And in one sense, brothers and sisters, that look and that recollection of what the Lord had said was also Peter's salvation. It broke him, but it's his salvation. How so? Because in that moment, in his despair, in his weeping, what had happened for him? He had seen himself for who he really was. He had seen his weakness for what it really was. He had finally been broken. This man who had said so strongly, I will never deny you, Lord. Even if everybody else falls away, never me. He's finally coming to the end of himself and he sees that he's a coward and a doubter and that he's a denier of his master. He no doubt hated his weakness and sin. Why else would he be weeping his eyes out? And what's remarkable is that this man would go on to be a pillar in the founding of the church. Clearly not on the basis of his own character or fortitude, but on the basis of the grace and mercy of God and how the Lord would use him. And we already know, as we considered together last week, that the Lord Jesus had told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. Satan has desired that he would have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. It's remarkable. Just like Jesus had told Peter, this is important for us, friends. Just as Jesus had told Peter about himself and what would happen, but Peter wouldn't hear it. So too, God has told us about ourselves and we often do not want to hear it. The truth about us is that we are weak, not strong. The truth about us is that we have hearts that are prone to wander. The truth about us is that we wrestle with doubt and unbelief. We are like the man in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. Like The experience that I trust is more normal on, in this church on a Sunday morning than many would want to admit is that we are reading a creed or a confession from this screen and you're saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. God help me believe that. And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, help me believe that. That's what we are. Our flesh wages war against our spirit. We talk about that a lot because it's all throughout Scripture and it comes up over and over again. And we so often find ourselves in our position of still being sinners where we often don't do what we want and we are not doing the things that we want to do. We're doing the bad things that we don't want to do, all that stuff, right? We, in terms of the truth about us, are completely dependent upon grace and the work of God's Spirit in us. 
We don't just use that language of being desperate like just because it's cute or catchy. It's true. There are things that we could never do for ourselves that God himself must do, beginning with what Christ accomplished, but even the application of the work of Christ to us. If left to us, we would never believe it. The Spirit of God works so that we do. The transformation of our own lives, we don't do that. The Spirit of God does that. The truth about us is that we never have a righteousness of our own on which we can stand. Our lives are changed. We can be encouraged by the transformation of life, but we can never stand on our own righteousness, our own holiness, our own obedience or sanctification or merit. We can't because it's shifting sand. There's a song that's appropriately titled The Solid Rock, and it's about the one on whom we do stand. We stand on Christ and Christ alone. What he has done, his death in our place, his perfect life in our place, his resurrection in our place, we trust him. One other important observation, friends, before we move on. I hinted at this. I want to say it more pointedly. Peter was grieved by his denial of Jesus. He's grieved by the fact that he has denied his Lord. So too with you and me and with all of the redeemed of all time. We are grieved by our weakness and our fear and our unbelief. So this is a massively important question for you to ponder. When you're struggling with your faith, when you're struggling about assurance, like, am I really a Christian? Am I, am I legitimate? Am I going to make it? That's, that's the question, right? It's at the heart of it for so many of us all the time. Am I a Christian? Perhaps the most helpful diagnostic question that could be asked other than do you trust Christ is, does your sin bother you? Does your sin bother you? Are you grieved by your sin? Now, I'm not saying you're as grieved by it as you should be. We rarely are. But does your sin bother you? We don't want to fall and fail. We don't want to fear and be weak. We don't want to be cowards. We don't want to doubt. Friends, this is good for us to see ourselves for who we really are. Because in seeing our weakness and our fear and our unbelief and being grieved by it, it drives us constantly back to our Savior. Seeing how weak we are and how sinful we are and how Grieving that is to us in our hearts keeps us continually returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. There's a reason why, biblically, when Paul will talk about the law, how it came in to increase the trespass, or throughout the history of the church, theologians have talked about the first use of the law, the primary use of the law being to show us our sin and to drive us to Christ. Because we see how far short we come. It's good that we would know ourselves to be weak and cast ourselves upon the mercy of the one who is strong. Point number three. I've entitled this one, A Politician and the Mob. A Politician and the Mob. So we've had fake trial and false witness. We've had denial and now a politician and the mob. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Mark 15. In verse one, we read it. The next morning comes, the sun rises. 
the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. This was probably to get their story straight, right? They've got to now go to the Roman authorities and present something that would be worthy of capital punishment. They're going to lead Jesus away. End of verse 1, you see this. They bind him, they lead him away, and deliver him over to Pilate. This is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. He reigned in that, ruled in that position from A.D. 26 to 36. And in the middle of his rule, this happens. As previously mentioned, he's the only one who could actually pronounce capital punishment. So the Jews are going. They're going to use the Romans, even if it takes that, so that they can kill Christ. Verse 2. They've got Jesus before Pilate now, and Pilate asks him this question, are you the king of the Jews? So it seems that the charge that the Sanhedrin, the council, had come up with was that Jesus was claiming to be a king of the Jews in such a way that it would subvert Rome's authority. Like he's a political rebel, right? He's trying to overthrow Rome. He's an enemy to you, Pilate. You know, that's, that's the MO here. It's important to note that politically, there already were rulers in Galilee and Judea named the Herods. But Jesus somehow is claiming an authority of being a king in a way that threatens the Roman Empire. That's the shtick. So Jesus answers Pilate in an indirect way there at the end of verse 2. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He answers, you have said so. Implying that identity of king of the Jews is accurate in one sense. The irony is thick here, very thick. The Jews are handing their Savior, their Christ, their Messiah, the one whom they even in a mocking way call their king. They're handing him over to Rome. Who could have imagined it reading the Old Testament? Who could have imagined it as God had worked with his people throughout redemptive history that it would come to this? the long-awaited-for Messiah being handed over this way. Verse 3, accusations continue. You see the chief priests accuse Jesus of many things. And Pilate implores Jesus to answer the charges in verse 4 and 5. He says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. Because if Jesus doesn't say anything, he's consenting to the accusations. But Jesus again remains silent as it was written of him to the point that we see at the end of verse 5 that Pilate even is amazed by what's going down. Pilate, by the way, is no dummy. He's no fool. We're going to see that even more later. Mark tells us that he sees through this nonsense, right? Now verse 6, before we get there, between verses 5 and 6, we know from Luke's account that Jesus was taken from Pilate to Herod Antipas, the ruler over Galilee, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate says, I don't need to deal with this. This is not my jurisdiction. You need to take him to see Herod. So they take Jesus to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And now we're in verse 6. We're told in verse 6 that there was a custom that Pilate had established during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, that's the Passover and the seven days after Passover. Those eight days together comprise the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pilate is a politician, right? He wants to work things well with his constituents, so to speak, right? though he rules over them with an iron fist, right? He wants to give them something. He throws them some bread every now and then. So during the Feast of Unleavened Bread every year, he had instituted a custom where he would release for them a prisoner. We're told in verse 7 of a man named Barabbas who was an insurrectionist who had committed murder. He's in prison. 
In verse 8, the crowd asks Pilate to do what he had usually done. Pilate, release a prisoner. It's that time of year, man. Let's go. Verse 9, he answers them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's asking the crowd, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Because verse 10, he perceived that it was out of envy that the leaders had delivered Jesus over. He sees through it. So he's like, maybe if I appeal at the grass level to the populace, they'll release this man because I think something shady is going down here. But in verse 11, we see the chief priests. Again, it's the leadership who are stirring this up. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Verses 12 and 13, Pilate kind of makes his last appeal. He says to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? What should I do with him? Verse 13, they cry out again and respond, crucify him, kill him. Execute him like a criminal. We'll talk more about the crucifixion next week, but know that it was a horrible way to die. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, traitors against the state. It originated in Persia. The Romans had adopted it. And that's what the crowd wants for Jesus. Pilate in verse 14, one last time, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, In verse 15, it all comes together. The plotting of the Jewish leaders, the cry of the mob, and a politician making a politically expedient decision. It happens right there in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he didn't want a riot on his hands. Released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or scourged Jesus, it's a very extreme form of beating with a whip, you know, that would have metal and bone in it. He delivered Jesus over to be crucified. To further demonstrate how twisted all this is, consider this. Jesus was convicted in a bogus trial. He was convicted of a religious crime by the Jewish leadership. That religious crime would bear no legal sentence in the Roman Empire. But then Jesus would be legally sentenced to death by the Roman governor, not because he had broken any law that would merit that, but because of the cry of the mob. So two closing reflections for us. First, Jesus suffered unjustly. Very simple. Jesus suffered unjustly. He was falsely accused. He was lied about. He was slandered. There were fabrications all over the place. Malicious intent. None of it's above board. None of it's legitimate. None of it's righteous. The proceedings themselves are all kinds of twisted. It's the furthest thing from due process as we think about any kind of upstanding legal system. So let's be honest about the world we live in. There's unjust suffering all over the place. We've considered this before, how when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, fair went out the window. Suffering is not distributed equally, and there are people who suffer unjustly in this world all the time. There is a lot of unjust suffering in the world, and you don't need me to explain that to you. You turn on the news, you look at your Twitter feed, whatever your thing is, it's all over the place. It's hard. It's hard to live in a world where there is unjust suffering. 
Is it not? When we see it, unjust suffering, or, or even worse, when we experience it, everything in us wells up and screams, this is not right. This is not okay. And it, it isn't okay. Injustice is not okay. And here's the thing. As hard as it is for us when we suffer unjustly, or when we see others suffering unjustly, it's good for us to remember the fact that no one ever suffered unjustly to the extent that Jesus did. No one. Not even close. Why? Because in being righteous and perfect and completely obeying God's law, Jesus was the only human being, is the only human being in the history of the world in an ongoing way that never in any sense deserved to suffer. See, sin brings with it suffering. He never sinned. We might suffer unjustly, and at the same time, we are wretches. We're corrupt. We don't deserve good, but it's still in our world, living with each other is terrible when people suffer unjustly. But the horror of the thought of the only righteous man in the history of the world suffering the way he did is mind-blowing. And it's a perspective shift for us as we think about suffering. He experienced the greatest suffering imaginable. He experienced being forsaken by God, not for his own sin, but for the sin of all of his people for all time. And he deserved none of it. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's been said many times, I'll say it today. If you want fair, find another religion. If you want fair, find another religion. Christianity is better than fair. It is better than fair. You get what you never could merit. You get what you never deserved. All because Christ, who deserved no suffering, suffered in your place and bore the wrath of God and the penalty that you deserve. If you want fair, there's all kinds of places you can look. You can look and go. It's not here. This is better. Second reflection, just to conclude our time together today. Jesus was ultimately killed for blasphemy, motivated by hatred. I'm going to unpack this and why it matters. Jesus was ultimately killed for blasphemy, that is, slandering God motivated by hatred. So he claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed in our text today at the prompting of the high priest. The Jewish leaders, because of this blasphemy as they saw it, handed him over as it was written of him. The hand of God, friends, is all over this. If we look at Acts chapter 2, just to understand how all this comes together briefly before we move forward. Acts chapter 2, Peter is standing up at Pentecost preaching a sermon. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's what happened. 
the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. Throughout his entire earthly ministry, they hated him. They were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's obvious, that whoever this dude is, he is not the Messiah. He is not the Christ. Can't be him. It's pretty clear that their hatred of him stems from the things that he would say that constantly was blowing up their religion. He was constantly blowing up their system, their religion. He comes on the scene calling people to repent and believe the gospel and pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. And people are like, uh, nobody but God can do that, man. To just stand and say that people are forgiven. All right, that's where it started. But then he constantly was setting himself over and against what they were teaching and what they were doing and demonstrating that their religion was upside down. That though it had the appearance of righteousness, it was not righteousness. His message was antithetical to their religion, and they hated him. To bring this into our day, for, it's true for people all over the place, and it can even be true at times for us in the church, that Jesus is constantly blowing up our notions of religion too. He does. He constantly says stuff in the Gospels that kind of turns all of us on edge. Like, did he just, he just said that? Really? When, we're going to get here in a minute, when he, with the way that he uses the law to absolutely destroy any notion of your own righteousness offends everybody. It offends everybody. There is no one who hears Christ say things in terms of the law, that does not come away offended in some way. Because his main goal is to drive you to the end of yourself where you know, I can't do this. That's the point. You need him. He's telling you over and over and over again, you're not adequate, you're not sufficient, you're not righteous. You've earned nothing except damnation. If you want righteousness, if you want reconciliation to God, you need me. When he continues to tell us that there's nothing that we can do that would reconcile us to God, that no works of ours are good enough, that no righteousness of ours is righteous enough, that no merit of ours will cut it, that we can't even cooperate with God. This is really tough because we live in a society now and even in the church where people will say, well, you know, God helps those who helps themselves. Baloney. Not true. God helps those who could never help themselves. If you want to cooperate with God to establish your righteousness, if you want to play a part, Jesus will blow you up and so will Paul. When in Galatians 5, he says that if, if you want to keep any work of the law for any kind of merit, Christ is of no advantage to you, none. It's an all or nothing proposition. It's Christ or it's you. If you want to uphold any work of the law for merit, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You better keep the whole law. And by the way, you've fallen away from grace. It's now merit. You better earn it. The forgiveness of sins even. I don't know if you've thought about this recently. I, I have just because of some conversations that I've had. The message of forgiveness of sins is absolute scandal. 
in a world where self-righteousness and mercilessness abound. To stand and pronounce that sins, real sins are forgiven in a world where everybody is self-righteous, condemning everybody else, and mercilessness is the order of the day, is scandal. Perhaps some of the most radical stuff in the world happens in the church when real sin occurs, it's confessed, it's confronted, and it's forgiven in Christ. Holy smokes. It's unusual. We so desperately want to be able to do something, whether on the front end or in an ongoing way, we want to do something. It's the nature of being a child of Adam. And when we realize that the gospel call is not one to do something, but to believe something, to trust something, it can be offensive. When we realize that the gospel call is not do better, make yourself righteous, pull yourself up, it's a call to trust the one in whom you're counted righteous. It's offensive. The gospel call, at its outset, the gospel call is not one. When Jesus bids people to come to him, he doesn't say, come to me and work. He says, come to me and rest. It's a mind blow. It seems so counterintuitive. When the law has constantly told us, do these things and you'll live, that we understand. But then the gospel tells us, it's been done for you. Now live in Christ. It's like, what? For real? The gospel, brothers and sisters, is not about you or me at all. Maybe that's why it's offensive. It's about Christ. We literally could almost preach every sermon with the title, you probably think this, this text is about you. And it's not. It's about Christ. To be saved, friends, is not to have done your part. To own this. To be saved is not to have done your part. It is to be in Christ apart from whom you can do nothing. As I've already said, so much of Jesus' ministry was preaching the law to people who thought they could keep it. Why were they so offended? He's dumping the full weight of the law on their conscience and applying it to their hearts in such a way where they're being wrecked by it, and it was something they thought they'd mastered. Jesus is very hard on people who think they can keep the law, or who, who think that they're righteous, or who think they can achieve righteousness. No wonder they hated him. He's the only person who's ever lived who could come on the scene and legitimately say, have the audacity to say, all of this other stuff is fine and good. The law of God is holy. I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. But what you need is me. But then Jesus is so different towards people who see that they're sick. He's hard on those who think they're righteous. He's hard on those who think they're crushing it. But to those that see that they are sick and to those that see that they are sinners and to those that see that they are failures, even like Peter, 
Jesus is the sweetest name we know. Our hope is only Jesus. We sing this because it's true. Jesus now and ever is my plea. That's right. Think about Jesus paid it all. And when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Right? We talk about what we're going to sing forever. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips will still repeat. All the glory will forever be to him. All of it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the redeemed say, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your plan of redemption. It's amazing to think that before you made the world, you had determined that you would save wretched people like us. It's even more remarkable that you and your son agreed that he would come and suffer in the places of sinners like us. That he would provide righteousness that we could never attain but need. We pray that as we consider your plan of redemption and as we consider Christ who accomplished it, and as we consider your spirit who applies it to us by faith, that we would be strengthened and encouraged that we would be stirred up to love one another and love you. We pray that as we come to the Lord's table this morning to feed on Jesus, his body and his blood by faith, that you would minister to us even there, that you would continue to strengthen and sustain our faith in Christ, that you would reassure us of our standing before you, and that you would continue to knit our hearts together as we come as a body to the table. We pray for that to happen now in Jesus' name. Amen.